Welcome back to What to Gain for Your Brain with me, Kirsten Mortimer. Last time we talked about how vitamin status can be dynamic and can result in complications throughout rehabilitation, which leads to increasing chances of readmission for subsequent stroke or death. We also talked about limitations for studies investigating this topic, including having different follow-up periods and cutoff values for serum vitamin D levels and confounding factors, which can lead to differential outcomes and data analyses, along with after deciding to take vitamin D supplements, determining how much for yourself can be difficult. Before we talk to our guest today, who is a senior community impact director for the American Heart and American Stroke Associations and is perfect for this topic, I wanted to talk about the best way to spread information about the importance of adequate vitamin status and what the best approach to policy would be. Maintenance of healthy behavior and lifestyle can significantly decrease the risk of stroke and specifically committing to a balanced diet can further reduce this risk. Two factors that provide measures of an individual's level of healthy diet and lifestyle are obesity and hypertension. Obesity and levels of salt consumption can both lead to hypertension, which contributes largely to stroke and can be influenced at a community level by public policy changes that promote healthier diet and exercise practices. Poor diet is the second leading cause of stroke mortality, which consists of a diet low in fiber, fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds, milk, calcium or seafood, and high in red meat, eggs, processed meat, sugar-sweetened beverages, trans fatty acids, and sodium. Obesity is linked to reduced neuronal synaptic plasticity, which can be derived from direct structural changes of the brain or changes in pathophysiology associated with obesity, such as increases in pro-inflammatory cytokines from adipose tissue. These pro-inflammatory cytokines can inhibit growth of neurons, leading to impairment of plasticity and cognitive recovery. This line of evidence supports the intervention in reducing weight for obese patients, particularly ones in recovery of stroke, who would especially benefit where learning is important for recovery of impaired cognitive performance. Almost half of stroke-related deaths are due to preventable risks and advocates support for screening populations of lower SES. These groups living in areas saturated with cheaper, unhealthier food and less access to nutritious food can lead to obesity or hypertension that will increase stroke risk. Although vitamin D supplementation may especially help these groups without access to nutritious foods, more broad policy changes are also needed to ensure that these communities can get access to fresh food and safe areas for activity. Many risk factors for stroke are ultimately preventable, but there are factors that exist outside of an individual's control that contribute to prevalence of stroke in a community. Stroke rates have been linked to socioeconomic status, particularly where lower SES leads to increased stroke risk, severity, mortality, and incidence at a younger age. Risk factors can increase due to poor clinical management, lower access to healthcare, and late detection of underlying risk factors. In regard to a readmission after stroke, minority racial and ethnic groups who are disproportionately represented in lower income communities experience certain outcomes due to different risk factors, diagnoses, immediate care, overall rehabilitation, and even levels of post-stroke attention. It has been reported that education and stroke awareness would benefit lower income communities and that several preventative measures such as vitamin supplementation could see clearer benefits if it was individualized to cultures or communities more in need. More research is needed to identify who would most likely benefit, but stroke awareness and vitamin supplementation could decrease stroke risk in these communities. Now I want to introduce our guest today. 
Elizabeth is the Senior Director of Community Impact and Policy and the Government Relations Director for the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. After graduating from Pomona College in 2004, she was a postgraduate fellow, lab manager, and research assistant at a number of labs at Yale University, including the Neuroimaging Child Study Center, the Autism Clinic, and the Visual Cognitive Neuroscience Laboratory. Elizabeth was also a maternal and child nutrition fellow, as well as a research assistant at Samuels & Associates, a project coordinator for the California Center for Public Health Advocacy, and obtained a Master's of Public Health focused on health and social behavior and nutrition from University of California, Berkeley. Here, she instructed a field course in public health nutrition and was a state policy director for the California Center for Public Health Advocacy. She is a highly experienced public health policy professional with a demonstrated history of expertise in community health, public policy, and primary prevention. I wanted to have Elizabeth join me in this podcast because despite her many accomplishments and current status in public health policy, she is first and foremost a Pomona College alumnus in my mind. She was a go-to in terms of discussing socioeconomic and sociopolitical subjects related to cardiovascular risk factors, but also on the Pomona and life after Pomona experience. It was very interesting listening to her career path after graduating, and it was helpful to be reminded of how to stay true to yourself and the opportunities you seek after college. She has such an extensive background in neuroscience, psychology, and public health that it gave me a glimpse into a possible future for myself. I also appreciated the discussion we had on the intersections between structural racism and health and how we can be implementing long-term changes at the community level. I hope to speak with her again soon to receive updates on all the essential policy changes she has enacted to make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy our discussion. first, I guess, tell me about your background leading to where you are now. Um, just, to, I guess, like what got you interested in neuroscience? And even if you want to throw in some um, fun facts that you liked about Pomona or just whatever. Sure. You want. <laughs> yes. Forming my thoughts. Um, so I went into Pomona thinking I was going to be um, a, a pre-vet, like pre-med extraordinary flesh you know, veterinary science sort of focused. Yeah, My dad's, yeah <laughs> right. How many people get a uh, sideline from that? Um, yeah, I didn't last long. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up taking in, uh, in my intro to psychology course I took because like girlfriends on my hall and my sponsor group were taking the class and I sounded like a fun class slash I wasn't really serious about it. I was still, still thinking I was going to do bio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had just the greatest professor, which is like a common thread, I think, with people if you get the right person teaching you. So we didn't have the like two inch thick intro psych book. We had um, a really awesome, small, floppy book called 40 Studies That Changed Psychology. And so it was very much a research science based version of psychology, not like terms and glossaries and con- concepts, but like like foundational studies to our understanding of modern psychology and so it's like Milgram's study um and looking at like you know yeah like influence and all these and even earlier ones I can't even think of remember the authors but just ones that were like you know they decided to do a lobotomy and sever the corpus callosum and they um discovered that it existed you know because they didn't know what anything did right and um and how that created certain aphasias in the brain and 
Um, and that led us to better understand how language is actually, you know, on both sides of the brain and just all these amazing things where it really took my love of biology, right, and science and turned it into um, this area that I think I was naturally drawn to, which is people, you know, and sort of motivation. So anyway, I ended up being um, a social cognition sort of focus to my psychology um, degree at Pomona. And then um, after Pomona, my um, husband and I did travel and did all kinds of fun stuff. And we were coming back and we knew we needed a, some, a real job and we didn't want to live in the same place that we'd live. We still wanted to do something different and crazy. And so we, we went across the country. We're both Californians. So we went to one of my uncles is in um, Did he go Canaan. to Pomona or where did he go? Everybody goes to Pomona in my family. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. Love that. So my husband went to Pomona um, same year as me. We didn't start dating until we were like before our senior year. Hmm. Um, my uncle, who we went to go live with, went to Pomona. My parents went to Pomona. My older brother went to Pomona. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we we run deep. Um, my parents li like lived in Upland. So I grew up next to the Claremont Colleges and seeing the Claremont Colleges. But um, so obviously my children will go there. Um, but anyway, so my husband, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so my, my husband is a, is a Pomona alum. Um, so yeah, we traveled after school and uh, we lived in New Zealand for like six months. We came back and decided to go uh, live on the East Coast and do something we hadn't done before. And um, so that put us down, you know, in New Haven where Yale is. And so um, we both kind of got jobs in the city. Mine ended up being doing research at, at Yale. And it just happened to be that my uncle had a connection in the psychiatry department, in the, in the child psychiatry department. Um, and, and through that job, I just got landed in doing um, uh, fMRI, brain imaging. And um, so I spent, so kind of developed a skill set, right, of running patients and stuff um, through... Uh, an MRI, um, you know, there was a tech, but I did the experimental side, like what they were doing and analyzing the data and all that stuff. So I spent, um, gosh, four years, five years, four or five years, uh, working in various labs at Yale while my husband ended up doing his master's in architecture there. Um, and so I was working and I, and in various capacities, including in the actual just psychology department in their cognitive um, psychology, um, actually in a vision and cognition lab, which was really interesting. Um, I worked with in an autism lab for a year. Um, and so I, I basically felt like by doing five years of research that I definitely did not want to go do a PhD after that, um, because I felt like I had done one already. I was like, I, this is not of interest to me. Um, and so, I just, uh, you know, did a lot of interviewing and talking to people whose jobs sounded really cool to me. <laughs> and what do you do? Oh, that sounds really interesting. Like, how, what was your path? And I found a woman who had started a, a, an organization that was looking at how um, policy and um, impacted children's health in Connecticut. And yeah, so, I mean, I was totally new to Connecticut at that time. Um, but we ended up staying for five years, which was way longer than I thought I was going to be uh, in Connecticut. But after my husband was finishing, I was sort of like my turn. So I um, was doing this interviewing and um, I found that everybody who was doing the work that I found really interesting either had a law degree or had a public health degree. And I knew I didn't want to go to law school. <laughs> I had enough Pomona friends who went to law school. Yeah. 
um, I just, I don't know. There was just nothing appealing about being a lawyer to me and, and all that. So um, I started uh, auditing classes in the public health school at Yale. And, um, and then, so I, I went to the sort of social behavioral segment of the, you know, they have certain lot of different areas within public health because that was logical from the psych perspective to me. And I was like, this is just applied psychology. This is just like taking social motivation, cognition kinds of concepts and applying it to health behaviors and to risk factors. And so it was a really nice fit for me. So then I applied to schools and um, after visiting and, and looking at costs and stuff, I decided to come out and go to Berkeley. Um, and I sort of had a side interest just because of friends and I don't know what, but like also in the intersection of um, food and the you know food system and and policy. I'd always had an interest in policy and um, and health. And so that kind of I started to, uh, also going to meetings at the Rudd Center, which is a think tank that used to be at Yale. Now it's uh, somewhere else in Connecticut, it's migrated. I think it's at UConn, um, but it's a it's a major think tank for understanding food policy and health. So I was just to say that I ended up at Berkeley. I ended up doing a master's in public health, um, and I and I did a specialty in nutrition um, because of the food interest. And um, and then out of school, I started working for um, organizations that had that were doing policy advocacy, which I can explain more if you want to hear more about what that means, um, but really focused on food system issues. And uh, so soda taxes and some of the issues with sugary drinks and childhood obesity and prediabetes and, um, and spent several years doing that. And then I came to the Heart Association with that kind of expertise because that's one of the areas that we really focus on um, with our policy is on sugary drinks and nutrition um, as prevention for heart disease and stroke. Um, but I actually just dropped into a position that because of where public health was at four years ago in the Bay Area, that the, the like sort of groundswell movement was around um, anti-vaping and youth. And so I came into like tobacco control hit me in the mm -hmm. side of the head. I really have focused a lot on food um, policy and tobacco policy in the last four years. Um, so that's where I sort of sit now. I'm, I, I sort of manage our Bay Area policy work around um, a little bit around uh, active transportation, physical activity, nutrition, food, kind of foodscape, um, tobacco policy, and then sort of issues around patient care and quality of care and access to healthcare. So those are sort of our main topics. And I can talk to you more about our policy agenda, both we have people in every state house across the country, which is really unique for a nonprofit. Um, so we really push advocacy in terms of public policy, obviously is really strength of the Heart Association. We have a major you know, federal lobbyist team. Um, and then we have all the other things that the Heart Association does, mm -hmm. which is uh, like, it takes years to become an expert even in the world. <laughs> so. I have some questions about food and policy. So Hopefully yeah. we'll get we'll get to that, but if not, then yeah, yeah throw in whatever whatever you want. Um, sure. That makes a lot of sense because looking through like the sage post and like your your path, it makes sense. I was confused. I was like, I think she was on the west yeah. coast, and all of a sudden she got to the east coast, and yeah. so that makes a lot of sense. And I can also definitely relate with. I want to. I went into Pomona um, wanting to be a bio major, and then I like kind of like the behind the scenes, like the micro level of things. But then yeah. like all of a sudden neuro was just like applying it to people kind of like you said like yeah. people um so it was kind of the part of science that i liked 
applying it to people that I, I definitely enjoyed. Um, yeah. So, wow, that that's, you've done a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, um, but you know, the path always makes, it's always the clearest when you look backwards. No, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. You're in those moments where you're stepping into mm-hmm. the next step. It can feel very overwhelming and not clear where mm-hmm. you're going or whether you're making the right decision. And, you know, I just, as long as you stay true to yourself and think about it really hard at each point in each mm-hmm. step, um, it tends to work out. And it's amazing. Nine times out of 10, something will come back around and I'll be like, well, yeah, that really came up when I was doing brain imaging and people are like, wait a minute, you did brain imaging? Like, like what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? yeah. it's like, it all makes sense. Yeah. That's as my mom always says, she's like, everything happens for a reason. And it, it bothers yeah. me because it's my mom. But then sometimes I look back and I'm like, yeah, no, she's right. I mean, I guess you kind of answered this, but tell me about your role at the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. Um, yeah. And I guess like what's in that, what's the most difficult part of community outreach? Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my role is I'm a senior community impact director with a focus on our policy systems and environmental changes. And so the Heart Association has a long history of program, program work and education, meaning we drop in for a certain amount of time. We run a program. Usually it's education focused. It might have some, um, you know, some aspects of changing how an organization works like a clinic or it might have you know, some work that we're doing with a partner like a food bank, but it's very programmatic, meaning it's short-term, it's not really, it doesn't really have built-in sustainability. And so there's been a shift to, you know, in public health in general, to really try to look for what we call policy systems and environmental changes, meaning um, it can be big policy, big P policy, meaning public policy, Um, like a soda tax, right? You change the cost of something and that shifts health behavior. Um, But it can also be organizational policy, um, meaning like a food bank no longer accepts donations of sugary drinks, right? That's an organizational level policy, but it shifts what's available to people. And and it's a sustained difference or change, right? Um, And it impacts people's health by changing, not by telling them what to choose, but to actually just changing what's available. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a system change is usually between connecting, right, between two different entities. Um, So that might be, you know, uh, creating a farm to food bank connection that is allows the farm to receive some funding and allows the food bank to have more produce or something like that. So you can have system changes that aren't, they're not a policy, maybe they're less sustainable because they're, they're kind of dependent on a contract or, um, you know, funding sustainability, but they're, they're still a bigger change than just telling someone you should eat more five fruits or vegetables a day, right? Right. Um, And then an environmental change, a good example of that is like, um, you know, is the prototypical example is is bike lanes. You know, safer places for people to bike, people bike more, right? Like one of the things we've noticed during COVID, right, is I live with a bike shop at the end of the street. It is throwing bikes out the door every single day. People are out of control wanting to be active because streets are safer. There are less cars on the road and people are home-based more, right? So they have, they get out, they, they're fine to get out for their exercise on their, on two wheels, right? Hmm. Um, it was hard to find a bike. We, we wanted to bike and it was hard to find one in the area where we were. It was crazy. Yeah, they, it is. It's really, it's really crazy and, and awesome, right? And then, and then they're shutting down in California, at least we've shut down all kinds of streets um, to increase opportunities for um, outdoor exercise and distancing. And so we have all these slow streets where it's only the neighborhood people who live on the block can are supposed to drive on it. Otherwise it's just open for walking and cycling. 
And I think to myself all the time, how the hell are we going to go back? Right. Because the streets are so much safer and quieter Mm -hmm. and people are walking more and kids are out on bicycles and, um, you know, it'll be really interesting Mm -hmm. to see if there's a shift back to more office based work in those situations. Um, but so the environmental changes are, are neither, you know, they're not about contracts or policy, written policies. They're about like really changing the physical environment. It could be like introducing a, a, a farmer's market or even a real grocery store in a neighborhood that doesn't have that, you know, an environmental change that really changes how the environment functions for people and, and, and supports their health. So those are the kinds of um, projects locally in the Bay Area that I'm supposed to be leading for the, this AHA office. To do that work requires me to work in partnership with all kinds of government and non-government entities, including um, small and large nonprofits, but also with corporate partners who have an interest in supporting that work, um, whether that's in alignment with their business or if it's just about kind of branding and corporate social responsibility kinds of pieces. You have to reach out to them or do they reach out to you? Yeah, the... The, the nonprofits and the government sector knocked on my door the moment I got the job. They were like, we need you, come along. You know, our brand helps them get things passed. If it's, you know, I can work with a health department on a policy that maybe their city or county board is wanting to pass and having our brand and, and our support is important for sort of political coverage, you know, to say right. that I'm supporting this because the Heart Association supports it. Um, nonprofits are interested in our help for similar reasons to come alongside them to lend that sort of scientific expertise and voice where they bring oftentimes a really important voice of like community or resident voice mm-hmm. along with the sort of science and medical voice that we bring. So mm-hmm. that's really easy. The corporate partnerships, uh, we, you know, the Heart Association has a huge mechanism of fundraising. So, you know, probably two thirds of our Bay Area office are people who are out there fundraising and the vast majority of that comes from corporate sponsorships. So unlike other nonprofits, which are writing grants to philanthropies or to um, foundations, the Heart Association is out there tracking down what we would call unrestricted dollars, meaning it's uh, just an an open donation to the mission of the Heart Association and we decide how we wanna like operationalize that, those dollars. Wow. Yeah, my other question was just going to be um, kind of like, how do you get people to listen and consistently change your behavior through policy policy change? But I guess that yeah. was kind of answered in um, just uh, for lack of a better term, like giving them no choice, you know, like taking yeah. take away. Kind of like. yeah. yeah, I mean, to some extent, so, so, so norm change, right? That's a big mm-hmm. piece of what we're talking about is like, maybe we don't take the choice away. So really good example of this is we passed a policy first in the Bay Area and then at the state level that says, um, that's called the healthy default drinks and kids meals. So, so it says that when, if you're a, um, a food chain restaurant of a certain number of shop, you know, stores. So we're not targeting small mom, mom and pops necessarily, but chains, right? Um, if you have a kids meal, if you have food and drink together, packaged and marketed as a as a, a meal for children, then um, what's on your menu board and what you verbally offer first should be milk and water. It oh, doesn't wow. mean that the parent can't say, no, no, I want them to have a treat. They can have a Coke, but norm change tells us that if I offer you and I say, hey, Kristen, would you like, or Kirsten, sorry, if you would like, would you like a milk or a water? And I do this to my child all the time. Would you like milk or water? 
he doesn't ask me for something else. He asked me for milk or water, right? right. I mean, our brains are programmed to that. So that's that psych you, from Mona getting back in. <laughs> yeah. See, total full circle, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is, it's really about changing norms. Um, and then, you know, the, we do work on like tobacco policy. We tend to, t- to look at like actual retail policy. What are they allowed to sell? Period. Right. So again, we're not telling, we're not just telling people smoking is harmful and you should quit. Um, we're actually saying you have to stop selling those products with flavors in it because we know that flavors, right? Omnivore's dilemma, we're attracted to a variety of flavors and, and colors and things like that. Those are just like hardwired in our brains, neuroscience, to be appealing to us, right? right. Variety is appealing to an omnivore. So if we can say the only thing that's available on the shelf is plain old marbles, a lot of kids aren't going to take it up. It's not even appealing to them, you know? But when you talk about it, oh, it's like, you know, unicorn poop flavored vape, they're like, Ooh, I gotta try that. That sounds really cool. You know, to me, it sounds yeah. disgusting, but you know, yeah. to maybe me at 15, I would have found it. Yeah. You know, so if you can change the environment, right. By saying they're just not for sale, it's just not what's on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Then you can potentially drive health behavior. So yeah, it's a much more effective way of changing behavior than just telling people that isn't to say that we aren't in also in the business of trying to tell people how to reduce their risks, you know, right. take your, but it's, but, but what we know, right. From public health in general, and actually I think for psychology in general is it's in, there are better and worse ways of trying to get people to make a long-term change. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, small incremental changes that fit within your lifestyle that provide immediate feedback, you know, kind of positive reward, those kinds of changes are easier to make um, than major lifestyle change. It's really, really, really hard. And it's really hard to sustain. It's virtually impossible. And it's always going to be easier to prevent than it is to treat, right? So when you think about um, obesity and childhood obesity, it's, it's way, way easier to keep someone from gaining weight than it is to have someone who's already been overweight mm-hmm. to keep weight off it's like, like literally metabolically more difficult. Right. Um, I guess that like perfectly segues into my next question. Um, well, vitamin D can be obtained through both like synthesis from UVB, UVB rays, and then also through dietary sources. So what would you say to people who don't have access to healthy dietary sources, maybe living in like food deserts or swamps, um, and at the places you work, how do you acknowledge this and address those with like fewer resources, um, to take care of their cardiovascular health? Yeah, it's a major, it's a major problem in general. Um, so I guess I'll attack it from a, like a broad perspective and then we can talk specifically about vitamin D, right? Mm-hmm. My understanding is vitamin D absorption is is modulated by the, the color of your skin. It's one of the few things that actually, you know, tracks with skin differences. Yeah, like skin literally. pigmentation, yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, I think that's, it's hard then we, we, it's hard to separate the social determinants of health, meaning structural racism and interpersonal racism and all of the consequences of those things, including what you're talking about, food deserts, you know, stores not being in certain neighborhoods because they literally can't get loans from the bank to open a, a store in a neighborhood that has high crime, which is because people don't have jobs. People don't have jobs because structural racism and like all of these things, if the more and more you understand about health and health disparities, meaning the differences in incidents, right? Um, and, and certain diseases between different social and racial groups, the more you understand them, 
the more you understand that it comes back to social factors and poverty uh, right. as it ties to those things, right? So it is actually interesting. Vitamin D is interesting in that it is also complicated by actual, like, you know, pigmentation. Right. Um, but that being said, I think the, the bigger question, I think the probably the bigger lesson learned and maybe less helpful for your thesis, but the bigger lesson learned is that we absolutely have to figure out how to work on those underpinning social determinants of, of health. Mm -hmm. and, and so what we're trying to do as a heart association, not only pivot from that education and programming to more sustainable or PSE kinds of changes, but we're, we're actually shifting from PSE changes that deal with, that are band-aids, right? Like telling someone milk or water at a, at a chain restaurant, if, if that's the only thing in the neighborhood is actually quite helpful, right? Because guess what? A lot of those chains didn't have milk. They didn't even have a really good way to give you water. Milk right? is the one, like very few foods actually have vitamin D. It's kind of like fatty fish, some mushrooms. Um, but the, the most heavily fortified thing with vitamin D is milk. And so it's like right. a matter of getting access to that. Yeah. So like, you know, I don't think In-N-Out had milk in small amounts for kids before we passed that policy. And then boom, everywhere you go now, you, you stop at an In-N-Out and you're going on Highway 5, you can get a little carton of milk. For a kid or a little bottle, they have little plastic bottles now, which is you know got its own issues. But, um, but but that's a huge deal. And I think you know if if you're looking at changing, you're still putting a bandaid right on what is a socially driven inequity. Mm -hmm. The fact that those that there are neighborhoods that are divested in right, like they have not had the investments in, needs to be addressed as well as putting the bandaid on in terms of saying that well at least your McDonald's now has milk for everybody or offers it first right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we have to work on multiple levels mm -hmm. to get to make that change, and I think that part of that is investing in, um, you know black owned businesses and trying to help, um, lift up and create jobs in communities, um, in ways that help people rise out of poverty. It means all the kinds of anti-poverty, um, policy work that we can do, which can be everything from better funding of public education to early childcare. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm a mom of, um, a one-year-old and a six-year-old and I'll tell you early childcare costs are extreme. And so what do you do with a kid until they're six? Right. They can go to public school. What are you doing to work, right? So that you can be out of the house working. Um, it, it's it's a major poverty point. And, mm -hmm. and I, mean, I also give you a lot of credit, a one and six-year-old in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a superhero. It's, <laughs> it's, um, it's been a challenge, the, the pandemic. My one-year-old turned one and he'll turn two in, in a couple of weeks, both in the pandemic time frame, so, which has been really Crazy. weird. Um, and my six-year-old is, uh, only known any, like beyond preschool, only known school to be on zoom, isn't it? Like all of kindergarten has been hundred percent zoom. So, um, he's really excited that they might go back to school someday. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, um, we need to address the economics and the structural racism. So the each I'm proud to say did put out a report about the intersection between structural racism and health, that it's that it is a health crisis, that racism and the way that it shows up in institutions like who can get a loan and um, how neighborhoods have been 
identified and sort of um, mm -hmm. redlined and all these issues, those kinds of things have led to intergenerational problems that lead to, to bad health, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then extended even to like access to insurance, like health yeah. insurance, and then also medical bias and like treating of stroke yeah. and heart health, even, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so if you look at like hypertension, it's like, just like the most prototypical risk factor, right, for heart disease and stroke. And the, the incidence of hypertension in the Black community is astronomically high. It is also disproportionately high with lower education, lower income, um, higher age, and a slightly higher for men and women. But like the difference between even the Latin American community or Latinx community and the, and the Black community, it's, it's so much higher. Mm -hmm. And it's tied to stress, right? It's tied to help to food. It's tied to exercise. It's, um, you know, weight in general, but I really think we're underestimating the amount that it's due to stress mm -hmm. and, and stress from all the things that you're talking about. Plus then you have like higher rates of, um, uncontrolled hypertension, meaning it's been diagnosed, but it's not being adequately, um, medicated, mm -hmm. and which comes back to your point about, bias in the actual healthcare interaction um, and, you know, access to insurance that covers mm -hmm. your costs and things like that. So we, that's why, like, when I say the AHA is just so big and unwieldy and we have set our, our policy, just even our policy menu is like access to care, you know, tobacco, which increases all of your risk of heart disease and stroke, um, you know, physical activity, active transportation, um, and even some of those kind of social determinants piece, we're trying to figure out how to dabble in trying to push better education and, and, um, and economic, you know, justice kinds of issues, minimum wage. Like we've got to be playing in all of those spheres if we're going to lift folks out of poverty that mm -hmm. are disproportionately in, in, in poverty. So it's complicated. There's so many factors. Yeah. It's more than just, you know, putting a, a poster up in a public transportation area. Like this is why vitamin D is good. And this is why yeah. cardiovascular health is important. It's just, yeah, it's more than that. Yeah. I feel like you're, you're really doing that. So thank you for the work you do as well. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I, I'm one of those. It's also nice to hear and like ask about, cause now I'm sitting here and I'm like, this actually sounds really interesting. Like maybe mm -hmm. I should look into that. Like I think I'm really like passionate and interested in nutrition and like, especially the, the gut brain connection. I think yeah. so interested and in, like, that's why food swamps and food deserts is so alarming yeah. and concerning, especially for, um, younger people and mm -hmm. you know, everyone, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, once you get into that track, I, I laugh like within the world of nutrition, you basically say like, everything comes back to poverty and breastfeeding. And make sure everyone just got breastfed for as yeah, long as possible. Like exactly. we would, things would be a lot better. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, so next question, do you know anything about vitamin D? Here's hmm. your, your big, um, a little bit. quick study. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Better, better to have a nice, rich, complete, diverse diet and get some sun, not a lot, but a little bit, um, make sure that you, um, you know, which is, Again, different amounts needed varying on um, on skin pigmentation as well, mm -hmm. like how much you actually absorb, right? Um, but that that would be the ideal. Um, and mm -hmm. that there are usually other reasons for for deficiencies, like severe deficiencies that are, are going on in terms of your um, metabolism. But um, and I know there's some risks that people believe that there are for over 
compensating with too much vitamin D um, from what I was able to read on our websites, you know, it, it looks like the research is not totally conclusive as to whether it's uh, a consequence or a, um, or a cause or to what are the exact mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, you picked an interesting topic because it's something there's meat in there to kind of discuss and look at. Um, but it looks like our position at this point is like, it's questionable to supplement for prevention, but mm -hmm. that it should be something that we should think about with stroke victims. And that makes sense, right? Because if, how much are they getting outside and getting, um, the right. There's a lot of confounding eating. variables. Yeah. Um, the last just quick question is how would you describe brain in three words? <laughs> oh, brain. Oh, very philosophical. <laughs> um, gosh. I guess I would say a colorful, complex network. I like that. I like that. I support that. <laughs> um, okay. Well, thank you so much. I hope I didn't take you too long from your other meeting, but yeah, I really no, appreciate um, talking to a Pomona alum and for you taking time out of your day. So thank uh, you so much. <laughs> you're welcome. Good luck. And let me know if you need anything. you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed how much she trusted the process and her path after college. It brought her to some incredible places and research labs and to meet some incredible people. That is especially great to hear now, just weeks away from graduating myself. To connect her discussion on big P policy changes, systemic policy, organizational policies, and environmental policies with our vitamin D discussion, we could perhaps introduce the idea of creating more safe parks and spaces for outdoor activities in order for people to get more vitamin D and exercise, which both reduce stroke risk, or making it a law that companies have to fortify their milk with a certain amount of vitamin D. Or introducing stores that have mushrooms and milk that are fortified with vitamin D to places that don't have access would definitely benefit many communities. I enjoyed the discussion on the healthy default drinks and kids meals plan, which is now implemented in California, where food chain restaurants have to verbally offer and have on their menu boards milk and water first, not soda. People can still buy soda, but this is a great example of a norm change. I mean, praise the woman who can get all of the in and outs to sell milk. I think that is so incredible. Let's try to spread this message and prevent, rather than treat, individuals for vitamin D deficiency and associated risks. In general, you should always check with a healthcare provider before committing to any new regimen. However, from conducting these interviews, I have decided that personally, I would like to have my serum vitamin D levels between 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter, take a 2,000 to 5,000 international unit supplement every day depending on how much sun I get, where I will try harder to carry sun protection with me while always covering my face, and consume a balanced diet that includes fortified milk, mushrooms, fatty fish, and eggs. I will also make sure to stay active and keep up with the literature regarding what is best for my brain. Overall, I have truly learned the importance of how making small lifestyle changes can result in long-term beneficial results. Well, that's the last episode. I want to say thank you so much for listening to this six-part series on vitamin D and stroke risk. I hope you were able to gain as much for your brain as I was able to while conducting this research and these interviews. Thank you so much.